From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Governor Pritzker announced the state's public health emergency proclamation for COVID-19 will end on May 11th. He declared COVID a public health emergency almost three years ago. To avoid the loss of potentially tens of thousands of lives, we must enact an immediate stay-at-home order for the state of Illinois. So that is the action that I am announcing today. We have looked closely at the trajectory of this virus in countries like Italy and China. Left unchecked, cases in Illinois will rise rapidly. Hospital systems will be overwhelmed. Protective equipment will become scarce. And we will not have enough healthcare workers or hospital beds or ventilators for the overwhelming influx of sick patients. Well, it was three years ago when Governor J.B. Pritzker issued a public health emergency that led to a state-home order and more temporary mandates back in March of 2020. And those have continued on, many of them, uh, until recently. And the governor now saying that come May, he will end the public health emergency in the state. That's an historic moment for Illinois and the pandemic for sure. Also coming up, an appellate court weighs in on a lawsuit over the assault weapons ban. We'll discuss that and more ahead on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and with us we have Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. And Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And joining us today, we have Alex Stegman. He reports on the Statehouse for WBEZ and Illinois Public Radio stations. Alex, great to have you with us once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So the governor following the president's lead, the president saying in May, in fact, May 11th, that the national public health emergency will end. Charlie, the governor chose the same date for here in Illinois. Despite the move, Governor Pritzker and state health officials are not saying that COVID is over. In fact, I believe the governor said it's still a real and present danger, especially to those with compromised immune systems. Now, we're not the experts, but do you agree that maybe the time is right to, uh, to end this emergency? Well, I think one of the reasons that the governor decided to end it at the same time as the president is, is because by us keeping in place the um, emergency disaster declaration, and I think we're maybe only a handful of states, and I think we're the only one in the Midwest, uh, we were able to continue access accessing some of the federal resources, things like expanded benefits for food stamp recipients, um, the free COVID vaccinations, that kind of stuff. And when the federal, when the federal disaster proclamation ends, then there's really no point for us to continue on because we don't, we, we don't have the advantage of getting additional federal money, additional federal help for programming, all that kind of stuff that we got during the time that the disaster declaration has been in effect in Illinois. So I think it's, it, it's, it makes sense for him to do that. But as he said, COVID is not over. And you're right, Sean, he said, here's his, his quote, let me be clear, COVID-19 has not disappeared. It is still a real and present danger to people with compromised immune systems and I urge all Illinoisans to get vaccinated or get their booster shots if they've not done so already. It's more of a 
bureaucratic, I think, decision than it is a decision to, to try and tell people, oh, don't worry about it anymore. It's still a real deal, but because of the fact that the federal aid is going to end, uh, the governor has decided that we, along with the federal government, will end our emergency declaration. Uh, Alex, we've seen some of the mandates rolled back, albeit slowly. I believe it was in the fall that he um, had the safety measures for health care, long-term care facilities. Those went away. Uh, some updated recommendations from the CDC helped with that. And just recently, Illinois officials lifted a mandate requiring prison staff to be vaccinated against COVID-19. So the writing was on the wall that, that seems to be that we're starting to move back to, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, maybe a little sense of normalcy. Yeah, it certainly seems that way, because when you look at the people who are who were under these mandates, for example, let's talk about uh, prison workers, for example, uh, according to there was a story in Cranes this week that talked about this, according to one of the unions that represents prison workers, the number of people in that field who are currently vaccinated against COVID already is around 80%, which is roughly in line with a lot of other professions that are public facing like that. So you guys reported this on WIS, but the and part of the reason that they wanted to get rid of this now is because simply put they need people to work in prisons and right now with the mandates they can't seem to hire enough people and let's not forget just how controversial some of these mandates were and i think uh uh, you know, it almost felt as though at times that the governor was quite tired of the the fighting. Uh, when he would issue these, he would often, you know, use the same the same comments. We're we're following the science, but at the same time, you could tell that I think he was hoping to get back to this point too uh, as quickly as possible and not have to have this um, you know this fight always going on. But he used these proclamations to to close schools, order as you mentioned, certain workers to get vaccinated, put the mask mandate in place. You know, while he was following the science, many people said, hey, this is a power grab. Yeah, Sean, I, you could tell from the governor's comments that he was really peeved that there were some people who, from his perspective, were so hardline against what most people regarded as common sense mandates, wearing a mask indoors during the height of it, the pandemic, before there were vaccines available, that kind of stuff. And the, the people who argued, well, it's it's my right. I don't have to do this. You can't make me do it. Well, unfortunately, the data showed that a lot of the people who wound up being being victims of COVID were folks who had this uh, give me liberty or give me death attitude. And unfortunately for them, a lot of them wound up getting the latter. So I think, yeah, the governor was frustrated. But on the other hand, I think the results bear out that he made the right decision. And if nothing else, you can look at the last election when he won quite handily over uh, Republican candidate Darren Bailey, who as a state legislator at one point defied the mandate to wear a mask in the House and had to get kicked off the floor before he could uh, come back wearing a mask. So, yeah, it's it's been frustrating for the governor. But I think on balance and history will show that he did a pretty good job trying to handle this this unprecedented, at least in the lifetime of most everybody here, this unprecedented health emergency. Now, when you listened at the start of the show, we heard the governor there from March of 2020 when, you know, we, we were seeing the cases starting to arise. And there was a lot of fear out there, fear of, of just going out in public. People, A lot of people didn't do it at all. 
would you agree, Alex, that the governor, you know, at the end of the day and, and when history looks back at this, they're going to say this was the right approach? I think you're going to have to look at it from a couple of different perspectives. And what we will probably need to remember years in the years in the future is that when this first started, we didn't really know what we were dealing with. It was a novel virus. You heard it called novel coronavirus all the time. So really the thing that we had to do, and when I say we, I'm not talking about me, but I'm, I'm actually talking about state officials and people in charge. What they had to do was use the information they had to put forth the best option at the, at the time. The best option was to take what we knew about this virus, and maybe not even this specific virus, but viruses in general, and how viruses in general spread. And as we continue to get more information about how this particular one was working and mutating, state policy did the best it could to reflect the changing concerns. And I think as we look forward in the, into the future, we're also going to come across some things that you know, maybe could have been done better because simply put, when you have a novel situation like this, you don't know exactly what is going to happen. So, of course, if you're in a position of power, you have to err on the side of caution. At least if I were in a position, if I were in a position of power, that's what I would do. If I don't know exactly what's coming. OK, let's listen to the scientists and say, you think we need to wear masks to keep this from spreading? Okay, let's try that. You think the vaccine is going to help prevent 95% of serious of serious illnesses? Okay, we'll try that. That I believe is what the administration did and that in my opinion was probably the right call to err on the side of caution rather than, you know, let's worry about all those other things. When the governor made his proclamation uh, at that time, there'd only been 11 confirmed cases and no deaths attributed to the virus in Illinois. So he, as you say, Alex, he was looking at it and what is the worst outcome that might occur and how do we how do we avoid that? And if it turns out that it was unnecessary, well, thank the Lord for that. Well, Charlie, before we move on, I think you can't look at the pandemic in the state of Illinois without also looking at the financial impact it's had on state government. A lot of programs have pumped a lot of aid into the state. And as you mentioned this just a few moments ago, that will be a lot of that will be coming to an end here very soon when this emergency ends at the federal level. But uh, food benefits, health care funding, money for housing, all of this. Are there concerns? Do you see, you know, problems on the horizon for the state of Illinois going forward with the uh, the spigot being turned off there? Yeah, I think there is a, a lot of concern, particularly in terms of the, the health care, uh, because we're not going to be getting the free shots anymore. At some point, the, the federal government has been paying for uh, tests and, and vaccines and everything. But that ultimately will come to an end, I believe, because the the federal government is going to run out of money to buy vaccines. And so far, Congress has not shown any willingness to provide more money. And then the the issue also will be with Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid enrollment really grew during the pandemic because the federal agency prohibited states from removing people. But now that that provision is gone away or is going away, so millions of people are going to lose their coverage. Several hundred thousand in Illinois are expected to lose their their coverage. Uh, the 
other financial assistance to families, like you mentioned SNAP benefits and food stamps, they're going to be rolled back. So there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering, if you will. And I'm pretty sure that this is an issue that the legislature will be called upon to address in the coming session. And I expect the governor will make some reference to it when he unveils his budget. You are listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and Alex Degman from WBEC and Illinois Public Radio. Well, let's move on to the courts. We've been following that a lot over the last several weeks. Alex, an appellate court in Illinois, has narrow, has narrowly upheld a temporary restraining order preventing the state's assault weapons ban from going into effect in some locations. Give us the update on that. So essentially, a judge in the 5th District Court of Appeals, actually a panel of judges, said that the law violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And that was just one of the issues before the Circuit Court in Effingham County, but this is the only one that they agreed and upheld. And they did so in part because, as part of this law, some people would still be able to purchase these weapons, like police officers or members of the Illinois National Guard or people who work for um, private security firms that use firearms. They would all still be able to buy the weapons, yet other people who aren't in those different classes would not be. Uh, but the appeals court didn't agree on three other things from the lower courts, and that those things included uh, whether the law was read the proper number of times on the proper number of days before passing. It's the, uh, you have to read it on three separate days. They did not agree that the law encompasses more than one subject, as the circuit court alleged. And they also did not agree that the plaintiffs were denied due process. So while the decision was still upheld, it wasn't upheld on all four counts. Now, keep in mind, though, that this is one of several lawsuits that have been filed. There are a number of them right now on both the federal level and the state level. We heard earlier this week there was a case in White County where a circuit court there issued a temporary restraining order sim uh, similar to the one that was issued in Effingham County. That one covers nearly 1,700 plaintiffs, and that TRO, like I said, was issued this week. And that's the thing about a lot of these court cases that are happening all around the state. They only affect the people that are party to the lawsuit. So, for example, even though the appeals court upheld the temporary restraining order in Effingham County, it doesn't apply to the whole state. It applies only to the people that are a party of that lawsuit. And that lawsuit specifically was being filed by uh, Tom DeVore. You might remember Tom DeVore as the Republican candidate for attorney general. He also came to prominence a few years ago by challenging Governor Pritzker's mask mandates. He was behind the Effingham County suit. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. So I mentioned that there were a few lawsuits around the state. Well, it turns out that Tom DeVore is actually in a bit of a spat with one of the other people bringing one of the other lawsuits, uh, State Representative Dan Calkins of Macon County. Uh, basically, Tom DeVore is saying that Calkins is asking people to donate money to his campaign fund if they join the lawsuit. And DeVore is saying that Calkins shouldn't be doing that. So they're in a little spat back and forth. Um, Calkins obviously says that this is not his campaign fund and he absolutely is allowed to do this. And the State Board of Elections, meanwhile, says uh, they're not sure. There's really no, there's nothing in the Constitution that allows this specifically. And there's nothing that specifically prohibits this. So, but they did say if somebody complains about this, they're going to take a look into it. Well, Charlie, this uh, this appellate court ruling that you heard uh, upheld uh, that that lower court ruling. 
your uh, your thoughts about this because we have discussed this before. You've always felt that really the big challenge to this law is going to happen at the federal level, but it looks as though uh, things are progressing at the state level as well. As Alex indicated, the the appellate court threw out the notion that the legislature didn't follow the rules when they uh, in, in the process they used to approve this legislation, and that came as no surprise, I don't think, to anybody who's followed precedent, because that's been long established in Illinois law, that the, the courts defer to the legislature when the legislative leaders, the Senate president and the House speakers say, yes, we followed the proper procedures in approving this legislation. And interestingly enough, I don't believe the core issue has been addressed yet, and that is whether the federal second amendment can be impinged upon in the manner in which the Illinois law would seem to do. That's what's going to be argued in federal court, and that's, in my mind, that's where the real game is. Attorney General Kwame Raul's office is appealing the appellate court decision in southern Illinois to the Illinois Supreme Court, and he's asking for an expedited briefing schedule. And the governor, has, in reaction to these um, these decisions, has said that he's confident that ultimately the law will be upheld. One of the things that I don't believe has been addressed, and which I find interesting, is that this particular legislation, at the tail end of the of the bill, now the law has what's called a severability clause. And in essence, it says if there's any part of this law that is unconstitutional or gets thrown out for whatever reason, the rest of the law still stands. So in my mind, it's conceivable, even in the federal court, they can say, for example, no, you can't ban people from having what you define as assault weapons because they're so common, everybody has them. And that's an exaggeration, of course, but they're very frequent around and they're very popular weapons, so you can't ban them. On the other hand, your law also says that uh, selling switches, devices that turn a regular firearm into the equivalent of a machine gun, that that's illegal. And the court could say, yes, that's not really an, uh, an infringement upon Second Amendment rights. There's also a provision that takes the state's what's called the red red flag law that allows relatives and police to seek a firearm restraining order from a court to keep guns out of the hands of people who are deemed as being dangerous right now those orders in illinois can only go as long as six months this legislation or this law would extend them to a year so on that issue the red flag issue and on the switch issue I think the fact of the severability clause, at least in my mind, suggests that there's a real possibility that those might survive even on the federal level. Okay, well, we'll keep following that. Also, Alex, this week you reported on something called pilots, and I wasn't quite familiar with this. Many people may know about economic development tools like TIF districts, tax increment financing, but pilot, in this case, stands for payment in lieu of taxes. And why is this coming up now, and what is being asked of the legislature? It's interesting that you mentioned TIF because a pilot is kind of like a TIF, but it's specifically for so-called mega projects, those that are worth more than $500 million. So the way that a TIF works is 
as property values increase over the over the space that a project is taking up, as property values increase, that money goes back into the project. It's funneled it's funneled back into the project to subsidize it. Whereas with a pilot area, the organization that is entering into this agreement would work with the local taxing bodies in advance to decide on what they're going to pay every year for the life of the pilot. So this would essentially give the property taxing bodies like the school districts and police and fire and all those things that rely on property tax revenue, some money with pilot instead of no money as it would get over the life of a TIF. So the bears, as I understand, were the ones who floated this. They are looking for some help in some way to relocate from Chicago to Arlington Heights for a new uh, stadium complex It's that they're hoping is going to be a year-round entertainment district and do more than just football for half of an NFL season. So what they're looking to do is initiate state legislation. It hasn't been filed yet. Uh, there is a draft that's floating around. They're looking for a sponsor for this. But essentially, it would set this up in Illinois, this system where developers could enter into agreements with these taxing bodies over the life of I think the initial I think the initial life of the pilot district would be about 22 years and then they could uh, extend that further if they wanted to but the reason that they're looking to do this legislatively is because right now Illinois doesn't have a mechanism that allows that as I understand it uh, 35 other states do uh, Illinois doesn't allow it and I spoke with the Illinois Chamber of Commerce not too long ago about this and they're idea is that, yeah, it would help the Bears. The Bears obviously would be completing this mega project in order to you know, stay in Illinois, but this would benefit other major companies too that are looking to make big investments in Illinois. For example, if somebody wanted to create an electric car factory somewhere in downstate Illinois, and it costs more than $500 million, the Chamber's stance is if it's a choice between us with what they say is high property taxes or say Tennessee that doesn't, who are they going to choose? And I can't think of all the examples off the top of my head, but the um, Clark character at the chamber rattled off a few examples of major projects that have been considering Illinois, but Illinois has lost out on theoretically because Illinois property tax burden is as high as it is. So long story short, this pilot mechanism would, yes, it would help the bears and the bears are the ones who, sort of initiated this conversation, but it would also help other businesses too. Yeah, Charlie, I mean, TIF districts, without a doubt, have there's been some abuse there. There have been successes with the use of those. This seems a lot more limited. Do you think this, uh, this is an approach that could gain some steam? Well, I think the fact that uh, it's so far, as Alex said, people pushing this have not been able to find anybody to introduce the bill it tells you something about what it's the likelihood of it's having a smooth sailing through the General Assembly might be. One of the difficulties is what is going to be the impact on the school district? Because as was noted, I forget in, in whose story, the the Bears are planning to have an area that's not just the stadium. It's going to be kind of a build-up neighborhood type thing with residential properties, which presumably would go to people with families, with children who'd want to use the public schools. What's the impact going to be on the schools when the amount of money that they can receive is going to be limited? And presumably, from the Bears' perspective, they would try and figure out that what we're going to pay every year under this pilot uh, is going to be less than what we'd have to pay in property taxes. The other side of the coin is that property taxes work, and this is 
pretty basic, and I apologize to anybody who thinks I'm really beating a dead horse. The taxing district figures out how much money do they want. And within limits, they tell that to the county officials who then send out the tax bills. And an individual's tax bill is based on that individual's property's relative worth compared to everyone else. But what it means is that one taxpayer gets a huge break, a la the bears through the pilot program, the amount of money that the taxing districts, including the schools, ask for is going to stay the same, but the burden is going to be spread out over everyone. So a tax break for somebody means everybody else pays more. And I think that might figure into the the uh, consideration of this also. And it's interesting, too, if you recall, one of the things that occurred in the lame duck session right at the tail end, legislation was passed to create what was called an Invest in Illinois Act, which gives the governor, to use a derogatory term, I guess, kind of a slush fund that he can use to try and seal the deal to bring major industry or manufacturers to Illinois. One of the provisions in that act, however, was a section that said the department, which is the DCEO, shall not award economic incentives to professional sports organization that moves its operations from one location in the state to another location in the state. Now, clearly that's aimed at the bears. In my mind, that gives uh, you kind of an idea of what the General Assembly's attitude is towards helping the bears financially. Somebody suggested, well, the bears might move to St. Louis. Uh, I doubt very much that would happen. And if it were to happen, the NFL were pretty sure put another team in Chicago because you don't want to lose that market. Let's go to our notes from the field. Alex, I'll go to you first on this. All right. Well, this is this isn't a statewide story, but you Sean and I and Charlie, we all live in Springfield, so sometimes we see Springfield news. And there was a story by Steve Speary in the State Journal Register uh, earlier this week, and I think we, we in the business call this a second-day story off of uh, a mayoral forum that was held. And I found it interesting that parking in downtown Springfield has been free, uh, at least since I've lived here, probably since the start of the pandemic, at least. And even though it's free, people are still paying the meters, and they're paying the meters a lot. So about $51,000 was collected in 2022, and I think it's like 25 cents an hour to park at one of those meters. I, I don't recall. It's been a while since I paid them. But not only are people still putting money into the meters, I also found out that Springfield Mayor Jim Langfelder is still paying the meters. He was quoted as saying he still plops a meter into the, or a quarter into the meter from time to time. And I just want to know why. Like, why, Mayor, why are you doing that? You know the meters are free. <laughs> he just wants to help, I guess. Let's move on to uh, Charlie, your note from the field. University of Illinois Flash Index came out this week for January. It's continuing to decline very slowly. Uh, it fell to 103.1 from 103.3 in December. Uh, and what it means, the economy is not contracting. Anything above a 100 indicates growth, but it's just very anemic growth. And the Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability released its rack up for the state's financial picture through the first seven months of the fiscal year. And it noted that general funds base revenues are ahead of last year's pace 
by roughly $2 billion. And when you add in the revenue gains from ARPA, the federal reimbursement funds, overall growth increases to roughly $2.3 billion. So, so far, we're well ahead of where we expected to be, which I think will be a feature when Governor Pritzker on the 15th, what, maybe a week and a half from now, unveils his State of the State address and budget address. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Alex Stegman of WBEC and Illinois Public Radio. You can get a podcast of our show. It's available at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and join us next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.